Broadcasting live on WIUX LP in Bloomington, this is American Student Radio. I'm your host, Alex Daly. Today, I'm going to be talking about breaks. But first, I want to address how expansive the word break is. It sneaked its way into everything we say, from Kit Kat candy bar jingles to wishing an actor an actress good luck. To address this variability, I took it to the streets of Bloomington. Okay, so when you hear the word break, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Um, probably when a bone breaks or something. And then my second thought is like when you when when an actor gets like their big break. I guess I think of like spring break. Grabbing a soda from the vending machine. Hip hop back in the eighties. For me, there are two. A quote from one of my favorite TV shows, Friends. And the title of what's perhaps one of the greatest songs ever written, Breaking Free from High School Musical. Our American Student Radio producers will share their thoughts and the interpretations of the elusive word throughout the show. Stay tuned. From Bloom... (laughs) From... uh, Again, live? Live... What is it? Oh, ready? Should I do it again? From Indiana University in Bloomington. From Indiana University in Bloomington. This is... This is... This is American Student Radio. Real chill. Real chill. Aliens. Conspiracy. Journalism. And lesbians. of you that don't know, I co-host a podcast with Danny Costanzo called The Entanglement. On it, we interview you, the IU students, about your relationships, hoping to disprove the negative stigmas surrounding college relationships. Today, we're adding Michelle to The Entanglement. Um, I'm Michelle. I'm a sophomore in SPIA studying policy analysis. Like many of us, Michelle has dated in college. I suppose I would define Ben with as being more like emotionally invested, and I would probably say five or six in my more adult life. But before I go any further, I should warn you this will be different than any episode we've done before. I will say this particular topic has me a little bit squeamish. (laughs) They're all wild cards. Like, I don't know what to expect. Because I'm not just adding Michelle to the entanglement. I'm also adding her exes. I would probably say that the first person I dated was Daniel. Pretty funny, quintessential high school relationship where he was like the class clown goofball that everybody loved being around. Um, And we just kind of dated on and off, I think, starting our freshman year of high school through most of sophomore and some of junior. We grew up together, so we're still pretty good friends. Growing apart is a completely okay thing, and that's not something that I understood before. Unfortunately, Daniel never replied to our attempts to contact him. Moving on to the next guy. Probably Nick. We were involved at a time where I was really changing as an individual. Decided to go to college, decided to pay for college, decided to change my major to the point where I look back at who I was when we started dating, and I don't really recognize that person. I think he was there for, like, the catalyzation of my transition into adulthood, which is kind of interesting. 
My name is Nick. I was a senior in high school. We do this like uh, senior talent show where like 10 boys sign up and like do a bunch of different like acts and whatnot. It's like Miss Universe, but with like high school seniors. <laughs> and we were both helping my friend JD with a song he wanted to cover. I played guitar, she sang, and we just kind of like hit it off from there. I generalize it into two parts. So there was like high, the high school and then me going off to college section. And then we broke up when I was a freshman and then got back together. I don't know, a lot of the times I remembered that I enjoyed was just like when we did nothing. Like we just like sit on a couch or like lay in a bed, listen to music, talk about whatever was on our minds at the time. Our personalities are really different. She's a lot more extroverted. She's a lot more bubbly. I'm very much introverted. I think it was a problem mentally in the sense that like we think we're so different so that we couldn't make it work out. I've become probably more social just by reflecting on how she was and how I should have acted in the sense that like, oh, like it's so easy for her to say hi to people. Why can't I do this? I feel like I've just matured in general just because breakups mature you. This is like something I think about a lot, not just like the breakup, but just the fact like when I break up with people, it's like, that's it. I think that can be perceived and was perceived as hostility. I think I learned from my breakup with Nick that it is totally fine to put the past on a shelf and just keep moving forward. And with Nick, because he's more comfortable not communicating anymore. That that was hard for me because several months later, I wanted to go back and say, you know, you were really there for me, but I couldn't even verbalize that. After Nick and I broke up, I was almost 20 and had never dated anyone that wasn't from my hometown. I eventually met someone that I thought it was going to turn into something serious and it didn't, and that was Justin. The night we met was Halloween and I was going to a house show um, to meet up with one of my friends and a few of her friends who were just gonna be there. And I made this ridiculous Batman costume. And I walked into the party and I remember hearing from four or five frat guys like, that thing's gonna get you laid. And it was funny, um, <laughs> cause it did. <laughs> I was more nervous to kiss her the second time that I kissed her than the first time that I kissed her. Because the second time we had like gone on a date and things had seemed a little more formal. It was different than I guess what you would just call a, a hookup the first time. And that's definitely a realm I've never, I had no idea what that difference was like, and now I do. I, I certainly wouldn't say we were dating at any point. This thing only lasted maybe a month and a half, um, and it certainly wasn't official in any sense. It was difficult because like in getting to know her, I was really excited to like keep getting to know her. When it came down to it, it was just the, uh, like, I'm not in a place where I can be in a relationship right now. And that was, that's something that you can't argue with. You can't tell someone that they are. That's not being supportive, that's just being needy. For me at least, it drops as like a missed opportunity in a lot in a lot of ways. To put it plainly, it ended because she ended it. And that's okay, you know, it's fine. I feel like I have a better understanding of how relationships can come and go now. I think it's probably fair to say that I Oh, or a thank you. I I was just so impressed with his like individuality and his maturity and his like he was just so on fire for what he was doing and for life and he was such a curious person and I was really into that but it just kind of bottomed out as I don't know we both were just so so busy and I never thought that that was a real excuse until you know I was living that reality. I've always been really nervous to tell people, you know, I can't do that because I need more time for myself. I always saw that to be a huge, like, character flaw. And I think that was the first time that I ever really vocalized that, like, I just needed to focus on myself. I guess what I learned there was 
that it's completely okay to put yourself first and that doesn't make you a bad person. And while each of Michelle's relationships has been different, she still sees similarities between the breakups and how the relationships affected her. I can take breakups pretty hard. I want to stay friends with everyone. It's hard to watch your closest friends continue without you sometimes or vice versa. You've invested so much of yourself in this person and it's so hard to leave that be. There's this general understanding that like, you still care, you still always will. Dating has made me think about what I want from those different aspects of adult life. And my mind has changed because of the conversations that I've had and they've triggered some different thought processes. And I don't know, I'm, I'm so different now than I was when I you know, had my first boyfriend. It's, it's funny and I do attribute a lot of that to the guys, the young men that I've met and that have challenged me. I think dating has taught me that your relationship with yourself is far more important than your relationship with other people. I think dating has helped me to become that person that holistically is, is genuinely happy and comfortable. For The Entanglement in American Student Radio, I'm Alex Daly. Music in the piece was provided by Joe Barry. I cannot thank Nick, Justin, and especially Michelle enough for letting us interview y'all. You can hear more of Nick and Justin's stories on the Entanglement SoundCloud page later today. In the next piece, Sheila will share students' connections with brakes. Car brakes, that is. I remember going to my friend's house early in the day. We went swimming in her pool. I remember leaving her house around, I don't know, like 12 or two. The next memory I have is waking up in the hospital. Everything else of that day was what people have told me or things that I've seen on the news. And so Corey uh, remembers kind of the conversations we were having. So me and Corey, my friend, were driving in his Jeep and we were going um, to his new apartment down in the University of Cincinnati. And so we were taking the major highway in to Cincinnati, I-71, and it was rush hour in the car. And then, so we were in stop traffic. And then we, I guess, were in the, fur, we were in the far left-hand lane. And so Tracy Martin, who was the guy who hit us, was in a flatbed truck and then was high on PCP and just decided, I'm not gonna weigh in this traffic anymore. So he sped down the emergency lane, going 80 miles an hour, hit five cars, like sideswipe, they said. I don't know what that means exactly, but they sideswipe. So they kind of hit the back of those cars, then somehow hits a Mercedes, which caused him to hit the median, which then caused him to go airborne and land on our car on my side. So Corey had significantly less injuries, but he remembers more, and we were in the same car. So that's why it was just bizarre, the fact that I had the majority of the injuries because the car landed on top of me. IU sophomore Liz Sexton was in the horrible car accident on August 5th, 2015, known in our shared hometown of Mason, Ohio, as the Naked Man Crash. That's because Tracy Martin, the man who was high on PCP, was driving naked, and after the crash, he got out of his car and ran about a mile down the side of the highway. Liz was airlifted to the University of Cincinnati Medical Center. You and Tracy Martin were the only two who had to stay in the hospital overnight. 
right? Ironically, yes, we were the only two. So that and oddly makes us connected to some extent in a weird, very bizarre way. Kind of in a weird, like, Harry Potter, Voldemort way. Exactly, exactly. I would not like to be connected with the soul like Harry Potter and Voldemort. Um, But yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it. This accident was filled with strange connections, and I found myself among them. I was driving up the other side of the highway on August 5th, a little bit after the accident, and I remember seeing mangled vehicles, police officers closing off areas of the highway, and a long line of stopped traffic. I didn't know Liz, or even know she was in the accident, until moving into my dorm at IU a few weeks later and hearing about it from her roommate, Elisa, who lives across the hall from me. That's when Elisa told me that because of the accident, Liz wouldn't be coming back to IU until second semester. Elisa said that it was hard to move back into college without her roommate, Liz. The first couple weeks was really hard because not only was I alone and I didn't have anybody to, like, go hang out with at home. Like, I was just alone. But, um, and I was, like, really upset, too, about the whole thing with her being, like, in the hospital and everything was pretty traumatizing. I got out of the hospital in late, I think it was late August, early September, and I immediately had to go three or four times a week to rehab. So that kind of kept me busy. And then once I got finished with rehab, I was able to go and sit in some classes at UC, um, just sit in them. Because my parents and my doctors were both really worried about, like, how would I be able to handle college work, especially with the brain injury, because no one actually knew what I, how to react. Um, but I was really, really lucky because all my friends go to school around where I live. So every weekend I was able to go to all these different colleges. So everyone always asked me, what did you do for a semester? That must have been horrible. It really wasn't bad. It really wasn't. I wouldn't do it again, but it really wasn't bad. Liz came back to IU's second semester after sitting in on classes in the Cincinnati area. She was excited to get back to her school, friends, and normal routine, but quickly realized that things were different than what she expected. It was definitely harder than I was thinking it would be. I thought, you know, because I'm a sophomore, I'm just going to go. It's going to be just like freshman year because my freshman year was way too easy. I just kind of found my niche really, really fast. And so everyone was so focused about me academically. They didn't even think about, like, how weird it would be, like, for me to come back. And everyone's already kind of in their their groups. And um, the people that I hung out with last year, I mean, naturally, they moved, not moved on, but, like, they've changed or they moved on. Like, everyone, that's a natural human progression. So do you think you're a different person than you were a year ago? Oh, 100%. Yes, absolutely. Um... But for the better. I'm lucky in the sense that this car accident won't be something that haunts me and I'm, I don't have many mental traumas from it. And my perspective and my mindset has very much changed and I can tell that. I, I would say that it's honestly made me more compassionate for other people. I'm able to understand so much more about people because I've been through this and somehow that makes you able to understand people better. Um, So I think building relationships with other people are so much more important for me now. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Sheila Raghavangran. Thanks to Business Failure for this song, Info. Next, Paul Yoon will share how he transformed an unexpected and unwanted break 
into one of adventure. Summer, fall, winter, and spring breaks. We look forward to them. We plan for them, and we're curious to know what our friends did over them. But whenever we experience break in our lives that are unplanned or unexpected, like breaking a string, breaking a bone, or a broken heart, we don't like breaks anymore. My family had to take a pretty big, unexpected break in the beginning of this year. Here's my sister with a short version. So I am a part-time student here at IU currently because my family unexpectedly had to stay in Korea for the first half of the school year. And why were you unexpectedly stuck in Korea? Because of immigration issues that take a while to explain. And my story this week is a long version. My family moved to the U.S. when I was in sixth grade, which was about ten years ago. And my parents started a Korean restaurant in West Lafayette, which allowed us to obtain an E2 business visa. If you're a student under your parents' E2 business visa, you're in this strange crack in the university system where you get to pay in-state tuition, but still you are considered as an international student. Normally, international students have either an F1 or J1, which you apply for ahead of time. Our family was in the final stage of becoming a permanent resident. In which the only action left was an interview with the U.S. Embassy in Korea. So we flew to Korea Christmas Eve of 2015, as our lawyers were confident that the interview would be scheduled sometime early January. Our family had a good time early in the break, visiting relatives, going on vacation, and catching up on Korean junk food. However, as time went on without hearing any news from the U.S. Embassy, we started to get worried. Eventually, it was a week before IU's spring semester began when we realized our lawyers were wrong. By that time, it was too late to do anything. Our E2 that we thought we didn't need anymore had expired. It was too late to apply for a student visa, and it would have been illegal to attend school at least for a few weeks under the B2 travel visa. I was stuck in the crack of the American immigration system. I was the glitch in the matrix. I was. A lot like Tom Hanks' character in the movie Manic *The Terminal*. You don't qualify for any of these things. You are at this time simply unacceptable. I was stuck in Korea when my life was back in Bloomington. My plan since freshman year to run for IUSA office was ruined. I couldn't take all the classes I wanted, so I had to drop a major. The girl I had a massive crush on was planning on graduating early, and my decision to decline an internship last semester, thinking I could do better during the spring, backfired. I looked into a lot of options, studying abroad in Korea, London, Shanghai, but it was too late to sign up. I sent an email to the U.S. Immigration Services as well with an expedite request, and I even seriously considered serving in the Korean military to avoid all the important issues in my life. As much as I am in peace with it now, I was very depressed back then. Esther is a sweet, optimistic one in the family who handled the situation a better way. Instead of wallowing in sadness, she used her time in a positive way. I definitely started hitting the Korean bookstores more, and I just grabbed these books and started reading, and then started writing more. And for me, producing work of mine that was meaningful—that was when I was—I felt that this is okay, and I am happy with the situation I'm in currently. 
Then we came up with the idea of using our refunded scholarship money to take a trip to Europe. By that time we started planning, my expedite request had been accepted and the interview was scheduled for early February, meaning Esther and I could come back for the second eight weeks of spring semester. After a successful interview, Esther and I traveled Europe for three weeks. In the month of February, we ended up visiting eight countries in three different continents. We stayed in different Airbnbs, doing a mix of touristy and local things. And we started at London and traveled all over Western Europe, met up with some of our best friends in Rome who were studying abroad, and flew back from Madrid. You know, life really hits you with things um, in the most unexpected times. And this is how it's going to be. And this is a great way to, um, like, going to Europe unexpectedly and then going to all these places that I've been dreaming but never really thought to visit um, during my college years. That made me feel like, wow, I can really do what I want in my life. Yeah, Esther is absolutely right. We had this extraordinary opportunity to do something we've always wanted to do. I mean... It was awful having life not panning out the way I wanted it to, but I got a three month long vacation from it. And from that break, I got to eat a three course meal next to Andrew Garfield, the Spider-Man himself. Andrew Garfield has a really sexy scruff. Visit over 10 museums and see a Rembrandt in person and busk with strangers in Rome, singing my guilty pleasure song, Wonderwall. <laughs> <laughs> Life wasn't what I left behind in Bloomington. Those are plans. Life was there when I was making my broken plans into something extraordinary. Music credit goes to Podington Bear and Ketza. From American Student Radio, this is Paul Yoon. To be honest, before listening to this piece, my knowledge about student visas was limited to what I'd seen in movies and applying for my own visa when I studied abroad. Regardless, we are so excited to have Paul and Esther back in Indiana and for making the best out of an unfortunate situation uh, and break in their studies. Speaking of breaks, I'll see you after this one. You're listening to American Student Radio. Follow us on Twitter at ASR Voice, like us on Facebook at American Student Radio, or find us on our website, americanstudentradio.org. We've all broken something, so to go along with our theme for the week, we asked our ASR producers about the worst thing that they've broken. And it's not as bad as you think it's going to be, I promise, but like I walked over and I saw these horses, like these beautiful glass horses. And I was a horse girl as a child. There's always one. And I went and I went to pick it up and I knocked it off the shelf and it shattered on the ground. And the woman working behind the counter looked and she was like, you don't have to pay for it if you leave right now. When I was like two, I was holding one of the plates and I was in my kitchen and I was being a big girl and I was helping my mom with dinner. And then I dropped the plate and it shattered and I felt so bad. And to this day, our set of plates is only a set of three. I'm sitting in the driver's seat and I twist it around and I'm rooting around in the back seat while the car is moving and looking for something. And the front right fender of my car just like crunched into this light pole. I, I just remember like, I don't remember the, what happened before, but I just remember hearing the braking sound and like everybody looking 
at us. Like, it was like, I don't know how, like a pot, like crash. And then everybody just, like all the faces like looking at us and my sister like, Welcome back to American Student Radio. I'm Alex Daly. Today, we're talking about breaks. From last Friday night until yesterday evening, Jews around the world, myself included, took a break from eating bread and other leavened foods during, during the Jewish holiday of Passover. ASR producer Sabrina interviewed different individuals around campus to hear their connections to the holiday. Rabbi Sue Silberberg, and I'm the executive director here at Hillel. So Passover is a celebration of the exodus from Egypt, but it's much more than that. It's every year we retell the story in a book called the Haggadah, which literally means the retelling. And we have a Passover Seder, and literally that means order. And so it's recounting the order of all these different things that happened and different um, different symbols of, of Passover. And so um, we retell the story of the Exodus and we're commanded to feel as though we were personally redeemed from Egypt and brought out from Egypt. And so through that, it reminds us how precious freedom is, how we should celebrate freedom, but also that in freedom, there's inherently a responsibility of making sure that everyone has freedom and that people don't suffer. And um, we also are commanded that if there's suffering today, we need to help to take care of that and to make the world more fair and more just. And so um, it's a reminder of all that. It's also a celebration of the springtime. Judaism is much more than a religion. It's really about um, who you are. It's being part of a community. I can't help but see the world through Jewish eyes. It's not just what I believe, it's who I am as a person. Uh, my name is Tova Zim, and um, I had a banana for breakfast, because it's Pesach, so there's nothing to eat. <laughs> oh, sorry, yeah, yeah, Passover, I'm in Passover. Just the Hebrew, uh, I guess the primary theme is freedom like based on the story of the Jewish exodus from Egypt. So there's a whole underlying tone of freedom and the concept of, you know, the Jewish people sort of be themselves and observe their own traditions. And um, it's a good time to connect with your family and uh, sort of, it's a, it's a big time of Jewish pride. Sure, I'm Jake Wax. I'm a freshman. For me, it's like when I think of Passover, I think a lot of family and food. It's a time where like everyone comes together, but you also like you have new restrictions on food. I don't know, you just kind of have a new appreciation for like the things that you get to eat during the year. Mm-hmm. So like, what do you miss the most? Definitely bread. Like, I'm a huge challah person. Challah is like the you know the Jewish bread that we eat on Sabbath. So, um, for me, to not have that is like it's missing a huge part of who I am. Like, I live off of challah, and even just like things like pizza, are, it's hard. Mm-hmm. French fries. <laughs> A big part of Passover is the Seder. It marks the beginning of Passover, and since it's a holiday celebrated by young and old, an important part of it is making the Seder interesting and engaging for all ages. Like, for example, we started doing, um, I think it was the Manishana, which is the four questions. We started doing that in, like, Spanish and Yiddish. Just, like, something cool. Like, most people don't do that. I, like, because, like, we talk about the Holocaust at some point in the Seder, so I added a whole piece about my grandpa and telling his story because he's a Holocaust survivor. He's still alive, thank God. He's like, he just turned 93. Um, so it's great. And then he will start telling stories. 
and I feel like a part of the whole idea of Passover is talking about like our exodus from Egypt, and he's talking about his exodus from concentration camps in Poland and stuff like that. So it's like a very crazy and you know emotional and upsetting event. Like it's still completely relatable, and that's it's it's great to be able to have something to connect to while while unfortunate, you know. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the whole Holocaust aspect is really important to me because we're like we're the last generation who's gonna get to know Holocaust survivors. We're the last generation who's gonna be able to hear their stories. So it's our job to tell their stories. So I think you know the future of the Seder really like rests in my hands. I need to be able to pass that forward. How are you familiar with the Jewish world? My name is Dotan. I'm 100% Jewish. I'm from Israel. Uh, I come from a Jewish community, from a Jewish country, but I'm secular. I'm not religious. I don't believe in God. I don't keep kosher. I don't keep Shabbat. I, I still uh, consider myself a proud Jew, even though I don't practice Judaism. Yeah, actually, 65% uh, of Israelis define themselves as secular, and the other 35% consider themselves other traditional or different levels of uh, like being religious. Well, yeah, we did do the setter um, the way that you're supposed to do it, but we're not too strict. Uh, it was more fun and, and uh, you know, it's about getting together with your family and friends and laughing and eating. Um, so we still read from the Haggadah, but it's not as strict and as, you know, as serious as it might be. From American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Sabrina Darrow. Thanks to Lunamatic for the music. Passover ended last night, and I was certainly excited to eat cereal this morning for breakfast. Growing up, we always went to my grandparents' house for Seder. The youngest person at the Seder must recite one of the prayers, and I remember always being grateful my younger sister was there so I didn't have to say it. Next, Alyssa Smith and Emily Miles interviewed linguistics specialists, educators, and researchers about the lack of cultural awareness for Latino students in early education schools and how this could be affecting their overall academic success. The Latino experience in early education is a unique one. According to research conducted by Kevin Brown, a professor in the Mara School of Law, students of Latin American descent tend to score lower on standardized testing than their Asian and white peers. It's not the fault of the students, so what's going on? To better understand, we reached out to an education scholar and professor here at IU, Dr. Carmen Medina. A professor in the Literacy, Culture, and Language Education Department in the School of Education. And I do research with immigrant communities at the elementary level. I'm very interested in ideas around literacy and social justice and literacy and creativity and the imagination. And I also do research in Puerto Rico, in Puerto Rican schools, exploring now some of the difficult political aspects of things that are going on in the island with children. It has a lot to do with the history of invisibility in the curriculum and in my case because literacy carries such a huge, it's put in such a high importance in schools and sometimes more than math or science or social studies with an English dominant curriculum and with a mostly white European dominant literacy curriculum, I think Latino students tend to not see themselves through materials, through conversations, through language. So it's through the kinds of engagements and things that are they're asked to learn 
in order to become literally in schools in the United States. If you see yourself in the curriculum, if you have a sense of investment in the curriculum, then you will see a better performance because a lot of what make us want to study something is because we want to be invested in mm -hmm. that, is because we care. Mm -hmm. So if we don't see ourselves, what is it that we are caring about if we're not even a knowledge in that sense? Much like Medina, Professor Elizabeth Herring has studied the impact of personalized language learning in the Heritage Program. I am faculty member here in the Spanish department at IU, and I did my PhD here in the department. My focus is linguistics, and my research is mostly in Paraguay, but I've also done a little bit of research with motivation and heritage students. Not here at IU, but in the population I worked mostly with was in Arizona. And they're just their motivations for learning Spanish. And because, again, I'm kind of a language grammar nerd, their use of the present progressive. I did my master's in New Mexico versus here, just with like the Latino population yeah. in the US. And so in New Mexico, they have a Spanish for the heritage language program. So students who don't know Spanish, but their family speaks Spanish, or they culturally relate to the, the Spanish-speaking population can take a different course than the people who, for example, have red hair and freckles like I do. It's a nice program that connects, from what I hear, because I obviously was not a part of it, but they connect what they're learning to the culture of the students, reminding them that you speak Spanish, it is your native language, it's a, but it may not be what is in the grammar books. And that doesn't mean that it's a bad Spanish, it just means that it has a time and place and that that time and place is not always in this situation. But the Latino experience in early education is not just a matter of language. One of the things that I try to work with teachers is that Latino children are more than language. So we are very complex human beings and yes, language proficiency matters. But if you cannot see and have a holistic view of the children, then you're just going to see us for what we don't know and not for what we know. So there are things that we know even if we don't speak the language. So, it, so it's like, yes, it is about language, but it is about understanding language in the larger context of a whole human being. I did a study with immigrant children in an ESL classroom where we read books about immigration and immigrants, and we have literature discussions that were very open so kids could speak in English or Spanish or mix it. There was no, that was another, that's another very important part of the work that I do with language. I don't see language as, I see language in very dynamic ways. So, you know, we code switch, we go back and forth and we need to understand how to develop curricular context to honor those very complex dynamics. So the children brought their stories about immigration and they were all, even if they were from Mexico, their stories were very different. And my story from immigration is very different. So in that particular context, we were, and then other kids from other places had other stories of immigration. And so we used children's literature. So we were engaging in the act of reading and we were writing, but we were telling our stories around the richness of what does it mean to be an immigrant and the power struggles that happen in the process and the forms of marginalization that emerge and how do, can we change that? Of course, though. Language barriers do exist, and the circumstances of polylingual education deserve closer inspection. In Arizona, I sent a very convenient link to a survey online to mm -hmm. Arizona, and people in Arizona filled it out and sent it back to me. And I think what I found, that study was a lot more, you know, traditional investigative 
scientific methody mm -hmm. sort of thing. And I found that that mo the motivation we were talking about this earlier that the motivation is really important in success in learning Spanish and why you want to learn it. If you want to learn it so that you can get a good job and get paid a lot, it's surprising how your subconscious sort of takes over and reminds you that that's not really the important thing in life because you're not going to be as successful at learning a language if your only motivation is to learn to make a lot of money. Whereas if you have a connect, a cultural connection or a familial connection or even, you know, I don't have a familial connection with Spanish, but I've visited many countries and I really appreciate the culture. So that's my motivation for wanting to improve, to be able to communicate with the populations and that we found in the study helps you. Something that we need to reclaim and reposition is the idea that these social structures create forms of linguistic marginalization, but at a personal level, I think that being bilingual is an asset. So when I work with teachers, I don't say, well, this is how you teach English to kids that do not speak English. These are kids that know a lot of Spanish. Yeah. They already know that language, so they're here learning a second one. So it is that shift in how we use even the language to approach that term English language learner is that we're not English learners. We know, we already know a language. We are learning a second language, which is amazing. But it's a construct. Yeah. The idea is a construct. So how do we then say, yes, there are language barriers, but if we think about it, <laughs> the barrier is an ideological one. It's something that we have constructed. It's not something that is naturally occurring. Not only have we constructed language barriers, but we've been resistant to accepting the Latino culture, which existed within United States territory prior to U.S. conquest. I speak English, I'm in the U.S., they should learn our language, but... Except that there are entire populations, like I always talk about, in northern New Mexico that have been here as long as they've been a part of the United States. So just because the people who came from England, the land they were on turned into the United States, while well, people who came from Spain the land that they were on turned into the United States. So I, whenever people say, no, they're in our country, well, we're also kind of in theirs. Their country became our country when our country bought that part of the country, so. In New Mexico, it's really interesting because there's sort of two main Spanish-speaking populations. There's northern New Mexicans who have been there since the 1500s. Mm -hmm. And if you ask them about their heritage, they say that they're Spaniards. And that struck me, you know, I'm from New York State. So moving there and hearing that people say that they're Spaniards or their history is from Spain, I, it was really interesting and sort of surprising to me. And then closer to the border in the South, they have, you have a more of an immigrant population. So in Albuquerque, which is kind of in the middle, these two populations sort of converge and at the University of New Mexico, they do a nice job to sort of balance the different populations so that one isn't better than the other or they don't feel different so much. We're missing the element of self-identification within curricula. We're missing individualized learning. Puerto Rican, Mexican, Salvadoran, Latino students often cannot see themselves in the system, a system that is ultimately neglecting them. But research like Medina's and Herring's is chipping away at the roots of this educational inequity. From Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Melissa Smith. And I'm Emily Miles.
Last week, Beyonce released her latest album, Lemonade. On it, she sings about infidelity, love, and of course, feminism. Sarah Penfill and Colton Schaefer are with me in the studio to provide a more detailed breakdown of the visual album and its complex themes. So thanks y'all for coming. Yeah, we're happy to be here. We are uh, we are super, super thrilled to be here. I think uh, Sarah and I have been just geeking out about this album hardcore for this whole week. Along with the rest of the world. <laughs> <laughs> we're just two of two of the fans. Um, yeah, I mean, I am a fan of Beyonce, of course, who isn't. But Lemonade, just for me at least, was her taking it to a whole other level mm. of art and her kind of showing the world who she is as a pop star, as an icon, as a figurehead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think what was really, really um, interesting about this album in particular is that uh, she explores issues of race in a way that she really never has before. And I think a lot of her work, um, and it's just really, really artfully done. Um, the way that she kind of speaks to the the black female experience and really just her experience in general. Um, so with so much like reverence and like, she's really just glorifying mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this community. And I think that's a beautiful, beautiful thing to see. Right. And it's definitely something that I think we were privy to in formation when she released formation, we were like, okay, this is Beyonce sort of coming out <laughs> almost as a black woman and just being like, hi, I'm here. I'm a black woman. Guess what? And I know that, SNL did that sketch where uh, white people start freaking out because they're realizing like Beyonce's black. What? <laughs> and it's just it's hilarious. But I think I think it's true. I think um, for a lot of people, Beyonce's been an icon, but they didn't consider necessarily her race and also what that connotes in our society today when we have the Black Lives Matter movement, when we have you know individuals, usually young uh, black men, falling victim to the hands of police. And so I think that she used her position and her power to to really promote power and voice and and yeah I think it's incredible what she was able to do with this album and lemonade and healing um, the the name comes from the people who have yet to watch the movie um, first of all shame on you second of all get, get around to it um, but Lemonade comes from, there's this clip that she's included of, I think it's Jay-Z's grandmother mm-hmm, at her 90th is. birthday party. And she says that um, she was served lemons, but she made lemonade. And she's mm. referring to just kind of the hardship that she's experienced in her life and how she's always kind of managed to overcome and be positive. Um, and I think that's really kind of what this album is about because it starts off um, very kind of accusatory, very straight up towards... Jay-Z's infidelities. She takes it through, um, again, for those of you who haven't seen, the the visual album sort of breaks down different stages um, of her healing as far as, in reference to Jay-Z cheating on her. Um, and so I can't remember exactly, but I, it begins with, I believe, um, intuition, and then it's denial, and then it's apathy, or maybe it's anger, anger and then apathy, um, and so on and so forth. So sort of a play on the stages of grief. And it's really magnificent to watch. I think that those of you who have heard it, like it's an incredible album just as music, but you should go go watch it, uh, especially because there's a poetry component. The spoken word really adds so mm-hmm. much context. It, it, uh, um, 
and I think it really kind of transforms the the album from a good album to something that is really, really just uh, a high art. Watching kind of the visual component and then with the poetry and the music and considering kind of her positionality, it's just incredible to watch. Um, I think you're right, a completely different experience. How did you feel about her breaking down her healing into those stages? Like, what what did that feel like to you when you were watching it? Um, I liked it because I think... I, I think there's going to be a lot of controversy about how towards the end she ends up kind of forgiving... Um, kind of forgiving and accepting Jay-Z, and I think he even makes an appearance in... Um, one of her videos. He does. Is that Sandcastles, the one where... Mm. Is that... Okay, mm-hmm. I think so. And I think a lot of people are kind of frustrated by that. Um, but I think that ultimately, like, this is her experience, and this is a person that she's known since she was 16 years old, I think, and um, kind of all that history coupled together. It makes sense. It makes sense. It was a... Um, it was just such a poignant, special way to do it, I guess. It was honest. Yeah. I think it's fascinating how she is able to weave in themes of black power with also, you know, divorce and, or not divorce, but I guess the, like, the threat of divorce or breakup or, um, yeah, just she's able to magnificently weave together that. And it's because it's part of her experience as like a black woman and she, she references and samples Malcolm X's speech um, in which he talks about how the black woman is the, you know, the most oppressed in our society, the most disrespected. And I mean, he has Michael, she has Michael Brown's mother in the film. She, um, she really pays homage to the black lives matter movement uh, while weaving that into her own really intimate experience uh, that's so specific and so much about her and her relationship with Jay-Z. And yet she makes it a greater cohesive whole for anyone listening. I mean, you can connect on any level, I feel, but I think if you were a black woman, definitely this would be an especially powerful album to listen to. And that's because that's who Beyonce is. And she is really speaking to her own experience. And that's what I loved so much about this album. I think my favorite thing is that it's such an intimate uh reveal of her of her it is and i think that um there is very little kind of celebration of the black female experience especially in popular music um in a in a positive way you know and even even when the experience isn't always positive just kind of being positive about that identity um, and I think that was one of the most beautiful things about Lemonade, I think, for me. And I would really, really like to see that kind of carry through in other music. Um, but then also, goodness, just even as a piece of music, it was just mm-hmm. wonderful. Oh, I mean, sure. bouncing all over from genre to genre. I know, right? I mean, she had a country music song. So Daddy Lessons, which is uh, a song on the album, is an entirely like country music. I mean, it's, yeah, it's just country music. Mm -hmm. There's really no way around it. And it's great. I mean, it's about her father. It's like, it's kind of relating, um, her father and her life in Texas to her, like, and Jay-Z. And that's a really cool, you know, the whole, like, 
your father did to your mother what your husband now does to you. That kind of idea is present in the um, song. There's a there's a line from one of the poems, and I'm not sure if it's before Daddy Lessons or if it's before... I think it's might be Pray You Catch Me, which is the opening song. Mm-hmm. Um, but kind of one of the poetry lines in between, she says, um, in the tradition of men in my blood, you come home at 3 a.m. Mm-hmm. and lie to me. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was really, really cool about Daddy Lessons is her tying... Exactly, just tying the experience of her father to her husband and kind of this almost hereditary um, experience that she's mm-hmm. had. And again, an experience that I think a lot of black women have or speak to. Um, and yeah, all the, all the poetry is by a poet named Borson Shire, who is this British Somali poet who's incredible, who I hadn't really heard of or known about before the album. Again, her using the talent... Um, and range and beauty that's present in you know the black community really awesome i think to demonstrate sort of the range of the album um we have just a couple clips that we're gonna play Um, and gosh, that was such a, um, confrontational bit. That part came directly from Don't Hurt Yourself. Don't Hurt Yourself was, I think, the most, um, confrontational of the song. Yes. Of of the album. Certainly. I mean, that's, like, the heart of anger, right? I mean, she's, like, saying she, she's really directly, like, it's confrontational to Jay-Z, I think. Just directly, like, who do you think that you are, right? Like, you're, you're married to Beyonce, um... And I'm not going to stand for this kind of attitude. And I can just hop on to the next dick, you know? Like, I can just bounce on over. Keep your money. I've got my own. Yeah, which she does. I mean, of course. And, uh, oh, she she references Jay-Z, um, like, bad. Um, and she, <laughs> Sorry, I just can't say that on air. Bad um, mother bleeper. <laughs> uh, God complex. And I mm. think that's something that... God. Yeah, I want to sing it. It's hasn't, so good. Hasn't he always like referred to? I don't. Was was that a direct reference to Jay Z? Do you think? I d- I don't know. I assume so. Um, again, you know who knows the inner workings, uh, and there's so much that went into this album. So much went, that went into every song. But I mean, yeah, I definitely interpreted it that way. Uh, and I think you can you can expand upon it to just think of like your reaction to any any person who cheats on you, right? I mean. Even if you're not Beyonce, you don't need to be Beyonce to feel pure anger when someone betrays you. And I think if you think about that feeling when a, when a person cheats on you, I don't know if you've ever been cheated on, but it's like there is a moment of like pure anger that comes whenever it comes in your stage of healing. Uh, and it's just like you do want to be like, who do you think you are? Like, I am this person and I am this great being. And you know what? Like, I don't need you. I can hop on over to the next, you know, man or next person or next lover. Um, I'll be fine. I've got my money. I've got me. You know, it doesn't have to just be your actual physical cash. But it's it's sort of a metaphor, I think, for I've got me and I've got what I have. I don't need what you have. Is that... Is absolutely an incredibly like self empowering song, um, mm-hmm. and just just full of gosh independence, 
just full of independence. Um, and then I think it's interesting that it follows up with, um, like, Sorry, like, she's she's headed mm-hmm. out to the club, which is, I think Sorry <laughs> is the one that everyone, no, yeah. is that, like, one of the most popular ones right now? I think right Sorry now? is one of the most pop. It's, it's really good, too. Ugh. It's definitely, like, single-worthy. Um, we can also just quickly listen to uh, one of the last... Well, it is the last... No, it's the last song before Formation. Mm-hmm. In the visual album, it is, like, the last song, All Night, which is another hit, I think, from the album. They're all hits. Uh, and it's called All Night, and it sort of shows uh, the conclusion and the conclusion of her healing and sort of her accepting uh, what Jay-Z has done. And true love never has to hide True love never has to hide Trade your broken wings for mine Trade your broken wings for mine I've seen your scars and kissed your crime Seen your scars and kissed your crime So many people that I know they just trying to touch you Kiss up and rub up and fill up Kiss up and rub up and fill up on you yeah, um, and that was just a quick cut of it. But, you know, I've seen your scars and kissed your crimes. Like, what a line. It was, uh, what I love about this song, it was all about just um, forgiveness and kind of how mm-hmm. difficult forgiveness can be. Um, but really how I think committed she is to the idea of forgiveness. Um, she talks about um, giving him time to prove that she can trust him again mm-hmm. and and in between now and then, like, you know, they're just going to be together and have a, a great physical relationship, which, I don't know, that's, that's, that's kind of sweet, I guess. The idea of making something delicious out of things that are pretty bitter. Lemonade, yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the whole idea, you know, the whole concept of the album. And it is bitter, a breakup or a cheating or anything like that. It's a harsh bitterness, but you do what you can to make it sweet. You do what you can to heal. Um, again, her tying that into the experience of, you know, herself as a black woman, um, just taking what you have been dealt and making it into something better. I think that's, you know, it's an age old expression to make, um, lemonade from lemons, but, it's really true and it holds true and she makes something so new and so bright um, and so beautiful and complete with this album. And she makes it not just for herself but also for just kind of the wider um, black community in general um, Mm -hmm. and women. Yeah. And just, I mean, anyone can enjoy this. Mm -hmm. Anyone can relate to it. And again, you don't need to have specifically been just as much as you don't need to have specifically been a black woman to appreciate this album. You don't need to be Beyonce. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. you can appreciate her journey and her experience and the narrative of this album, which is truly what it is. She creates a a whole narrative, um, which I just absolutely love. So I want to leave you guys with one question. So in the past, Beyonce has had songs like Crazy in Love, Halo, Love on Top, Countdown, all these love songs about this guy. Um, And there really isn't one of those on Lemonade. It's about betrayal and infidelity. Do you think that this is a new wave of Beyonce that we're seeing? Or is it just a continuation of what she's already created? Hmm. 
I think Beyonce is being a lot more daring mm-hmm. than she has been in the past. Um, there really doesn't sound like a crazy in love sort of hit single on this album. Uh, or, and I mean, there are plenty of songs that kind of could serve as that function, but really it feels like all of the songs are meant to be taken as part of the complete whole. Yeah. I think she's more evolved than that. I think it's, I think this makes sense for her in her natural progression. Um, and you know, as you get older and as you think more about what you're creating, uh, I mean, at least how I interpret her actions, I think she is creating work that is more dense than anything that she's made before. I mean, I love the, all the songs that you just listed. Like those are great songs on their own, but this, it really, for me, takes it to a whole nother level of work, um, and music and, and an intention. Mm-hmm. Gosh, mm-hmm. the intention uh, behind it. It was incredible. So I think, uh, she's not beholden to chart success anymore. No, not at all. She's way beyond that. I think this album was for her. <laughs> yeah, this album, this album, I think was a healing act. Um, I mean, there have been so many jokes of late that are like, oh, I can't imagine the conversations at dinner. You know, Jay-Z's <laughs> like, how's your album coming? And she's like, oh, it's great. Great, honey. Like, you know, uh, but I mean, I, I, we don't know Beyonce, right? I mean, she is one of those figures, um, especially in American culture today, that's like so studied and analyzed and, uh, you know, hounded, but she's just a person and she has devoted her life to her art. And I think that it makes so much sense that this is what has come out of a life of, of work in music. It feels, um, natural. Mm-hmm. And this is the this is the age of the memoir, as they say, uh, and I think I think this really is an intimate reflection, um, and her sort of giving a piece of herself to the world and sharing that experience, her unique perspective. All right, well, thank you for sharing your perspectives on this album. Um, that was Colton and Sarah. So to you, the listeners, thank you for listening to American Student Radio on WIUX this afternoon. Once again, I'm Alex Daly. Keep up with ASR on social media to see when we will be hosting over the summer break. If you're a student, good luck with finals and have a great summer. Thanks for listening to American Student Radio. We're produced by students from Indiana University in Bloomington. Follow us on Twitter at ASR Voice and like us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash American Student Radio. Our theme music is provided by Lunamatic. Check out Lunamatic's music at www.soundcloud.com slash Lunamatic. That's L-U-N-A-M-A-T-I-C. We'll have new episodes every Sunday on WIUX and streaming on our website at www.americanstudentradio.org. 